but I'm also kind of wary of sort of models or theories where one can see, you know, where one talks about silver linings or resilience or, you know, there being in some way kind of good things that will come out of it. Because, you know, my belief, and it's fairly blunt probably, is that that, that, it, that is not the case. I do not detect any silver linings in my experience i i would much 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 rather this not this had not happened in every single possible way hello and welcome my name is liz gleason and you're listening to shapes of grief shapes of grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors grief professionals and ordinary people all with a unique perspective on grief and loss loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives And it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. Morning, everybody, or good afternoon, depending on when you're listening to this. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Juliet Rosenfeld, who's written a beautiful book, The State of Disbelief, about her experience through the illness, dying, and death of her husband, Andrew. Juliet, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Liz. I'm very, very delighted to, to be talking to you on your wonderful podcast, which I've really enjoyed listening wow. to. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm delighted to have you amongst the other wonderful guests. And as always, like, I'm just so looking forward to the wisdom you're going to bring, Juliet. Um, Your book is amazing. It's a lovely manual for anybody facing into serious illness um, and for anyone experiencing grief. What really struck me while I was listening to it, because I listened to it on Audible, was how everybody's experience of grief is so unique, yet we're so similar. There's so many themes that you speak about that are so new to you in the moment, yet are so common to the human experience of grief. And I think because they're new to you, it's because grief isn't something that's spoken about enough. And that's something I'd really like to discuss with you today. You know, some of these taboo things, I've taken a few notes um, that I'd love to come back to. Some of these taboo situations we find ourselves in that are so normal in grief, yet we would never share them with other people. Um, we'll, We'll come back to that. But first of all, Juliet, Andrew really comes alive in the book, as does your love uh, for each other. Um, It reminded me a little bit of C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, because C.S. Lewis met his wife, his beloved, late in life. He was in his 50s, I think, and only had three short years with her before she died. And similarly, you met Andrew, I think you were in your 40s, spent some time together and only had seven months together after your marriage, before Andrew died. So tell us a little bit, who was Andrew to you, Juliet? 
Well, I mean, above all, he was he was uh, the most wonderful man. He was very, very kind, very, very clever, uh, very funny, um, very handsome. And he was also a very brilliant businessman. He was a very successful, smart entrepreneur who just was highly imaginative and creative, uh, thoughtful person. And, you know, that obviously was a very kind of delightful combination of characteristics to be with. So that was who he was. And um, yeah, he was 49 when I met him and he died when he was 52. So three years, you were in each other's lives for three years before Andrew died. Mm -hmm. And how many years has it been since he died? So it's been five and a half years. He died in 2015, February 2015. So yeah, five and a half years. Okay. Juliet, how Andrew died, which was not the way you had planned on things panning out, when Andrew got his diagnosis, what changed for you? I think when um, anyone is given a, a very serious diagnosis of a serious illness, everything changes, you know, in seconds, actually. And um, I wrote in the book about waking up the morning after he had been told that he had, I mean, out, out of nowhere, he was told he had lung cancer. He discovered a little nodule on his neck. He had a knee that he wanted to get an ultrasound on because he was very, uh, you know, sort of a sportsman, let's say, and he, he was careful about his joints and stuff. He's a fantastic golf player. And, and, you know, he'd just gone along to see the GP and asked him to check this funny thing on his neck. And within 24 hours, um, we were told that this little thing was a secondary cancer with the primary tumour being in his lung. And he'd never smoked cigarettes. He was incredibly healthy, incredibly fit. So it was, it was completely out of the blue. And the morning after being told that, he, we woke up and, you know, in that way that terrible things come back to you sort of seconds after you've woken up, we both remembered. And um, he said, it's like being in the room next door, which I, I think is a very, um, well, it's a very sort of poetic, but also a very accurate way of, of how he felt so that it was almost as if in our normal lives, which of course continued because most people do, it was fairly asymptomatic cancer in his case, probably because he was very fit. So, you know, we just carried on and he submitted to the treatment, we carried on, but he would refer to it as the room next door. And when we went into the room next door, which he almost sort of would take me in with him and I, I didn't need to be brought into it because I felt it too. It's a, it's a sort of room where nothing else is the same as it was nothing really matters in the same way all the kind of mundane things that one thinks about and the important thing one one thinks about become as as if they're meaningless because you are suddenly i think confronted we hadn't been told it was a terminal illness obviously we knew it was a serious illness but i think from that moment anybody hears the word cancer actually and i think death and cancer in the mind at least are you know they're, they're sort of irrevocably linked so that that was how you know that was how he chose to think about it and and actually it became a kind of helpful way I think a sort of shorthand between us of of you know if we ever managed to forget for a few hours 
about this very serious thing that was going on this was a kind of instant way of of sort of focusing us on back on the gravity of the situation yeah and it's it's interesting you know the, the, such a sense of the surreal nature of a diagnosis when we're given a diagnosis like this isn't me this is something that happens to other people yet all of us are so shocked when we happen to be that other person you know when it knocks at our own door and you know one of the ways that Andrew chose to manage his illness was we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to tell other people about this. It's almost like he chose to keep it in the room next door, to keep it separate, to keep it as this alternative reality. Um, and if maybe if I keep it in the room next door, it won't come into our lives. Do you think that was an unconscious strategy when he chose not to tell anybody and asked you not to as well? Yes, I do think it was an unconscious strategy with an interesting, very kind of conscious consequence. But I do think it was an unconscious strategy. And I think it is a way of avoiding reality. I think it's a way of avoiding, you know, the terrible, terrible pain that a person uh, given a diagnosis like that feels. It's a way of, of keeping it at bay. Um, and I suppose one of the things that, you know, as a clinician um, and as someone who works a lot with, with bereavement, I mean, I did before Andrew got sick and I obviously do now. I think increasingly I believe that if it is possible to avoid denial, that is the best way, that the kind of protective value is very, very limited. It's, you know, it may work a bit for the sufferer, it may work a little bit for the person, the people around, you know, the loved one, but ultimately, um, you know, when it is a terminal illness, I think the consequences of denial are very, are very serious and very difficult and, and probably cases, you know, make things considerably harder. Um, you know, the processing of the death, I think is made much harder when there's been a denial. Yeah. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief-trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. I'd really concur with that. And I know from a few people that I've supported who've had, uh, you know, a diagnosis, not necessarily a terminal prognosis, but the anxiety that's there, you know, that's, that's omnipresent in everything they do. And sometimes with the question, are you scared you're going to die? They're so shocked that you would mention the D word. They might cry and heave a little. And then the relief of it's out there on the table that this is something that's been in my thoughts and in my body and in my fears. Um, it's almost like to say it is to somehow dissolve it slightly in that moment. So, But at that time, you were still almost in denial at that point with him and colluding with him. 
Would you say a little bit about that? What was it like for you to collude with him in keeping this secret? As someone who had a little bit more perspective, you weren't the person with the diagnosis, so you could see in a little bit better. Well, I mean, at the beginning of the book, I talk about the two people that did know who were our very close friends who just, we were supposed to be meeting them that night. And uh, our friend just kept on ringing to say, where, you know, where are we meeting? We were going to have some dinner and we didn't ring back because we had found ourselves unexpectedly uh, in a lung physician's consulting room being given times for the, um, you know, thromboscopy that would take place, you know, two mornings later. Uh, but these, this couple um, had had a son with cancer who has survived and lived very well. And um, as they left, um, the, um, our friend said to us and said to Andrew, you know, this is your cancer, this is your disease, and, and you must deal with it how you think best. And I think that was very important for Andrew to hear. Um, Although I think it, in, you know, I think it did give him the agency to, to deal with it as he felt. And I think you know, one of the, I mean, there are many reasons I had for writing my book. Um, one of them was perhaps about writing about the experience of, of, of being, uh, you know, with somebody who was very, he was a very kind of powerful person. He was a powerful man. He was used to doing things his way. He was a very, very clever man. And he was a strategic man and he, he thought about things in a particular way and he decided this was indeed his disease and he was indeed going to run it as he wanted to. And, and I suppose where I got to with that was, yes, this is your disease and, you know, I don't have it and I don't really have a right in this situation to tell you how to deal with it. I don't have a right to tell you how to talk to other people about it or who you tell so I did comply with it and I, I complied with it as a lot of people do because I loved him. So it's a kind of dilemma, this thing, I think, of, of, of you know, how does a person think about their disease? I, one of the things I've written about is I don't, you know, fortunately, I don't know what it's like to have cancer. I know what it's like to live with somebody with cancer, but I don't know what it's like to have cancer myself. And I don't know how I would, how I would behave. And there's also you know, I think this important, difficult thing of, of serious disease when it comes along earlier in life. I mean, 52 is, or 51, 50 as he was, 51 is, it's pretty young. And it's, you know, it, and I know again from my clinical experience and, and we will all know people that have been diagnosed much later on in life. And it can be, apart from the fact that the disease can be very different later in life, you know, it can be something that is, is coped with in a very different way in, in someone's 80s to in someone's 50s or, you know, 40s, 30s, 20s or for a child. I mean, it's, all these factors, I think, are, are very, you know, you know, make each experience so, dif so different. What also really struck me, Juliet, was this position that you were holding while you didn't have cancer, it was deeply affecting you um, because this man that you love has cancer. And then the, the ripple effect, like it affects the entire family. So on one hand, you're holding him and his wish 
to keep his cancer secret from as many people as possible. You're also trying to keep things going at home. As a therapist, you're also aware of your need to process. Um, and you spoke about, you know, going to New York for the second opinion and the treatment and you choosing to stay with the children on that occasion, whereas on many other occasions you went with Andrew and were aware of the children doing a performance that you were missing. Like what a pull between a partner and your family, everybody who needs you and trying to get it right. Like what a position to be in. Well, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's so common though, isn't it? That, that, that being in that position that, that you are, as the you know as the spouse or the partner of somebody with a very serious illness you are so desperate i think to in a sense kind of protect your couple and just to be do everything that you that you that you possibly can to help them mm. um but there were you know for most people there were also all sorts of kind of other calls and that's children or you know other people in the family and of course work and you know it's just a daily the daily sort of um you know routine and i think that you know yes it is it is very difficult and and i suppose it strengthens my view uh that where possible denial is is probably not the best way to deal with it but i can also see and i suppose i think about this a lot in in my work generally you know the importance of the kind of importance of a sort of private internal life, the importance of not having to share everything uh, with everybody and the importance, particularly, I think, um, you know, people's feelings about their bodies. And some people are very disclosive, aren't they, about their illnesses. And some people are very, very private. And, and when you have a disease, um, you know, very serious disease, like this well what you know what do you tell people you know what 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 do you say do you do you do you know do you have to kind of tell everybody what you know do you want to then be in that situation where people are often very kindly asking you how is it going or what and 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 so i think it's it's just a tremendously difficult situation um i've certainly worked with people where they have felt that it was it was sort of harder for the for the spouse than it was for them because at least if you are the person being treated you are the person where the sort of you know the the attention is is being focused whereas the you know the the spouse can feel very very helpless and sort of as if they they really can't do anything you know at all to kind of make the situation better one of the things i wrote about was you know trying to help by getting um very uh sort of fixated with the kind of diet that andrew should eat and you know doing a lot of you know making him take lots of supplements and eat a lot of kale and things he didn't really like eating and you know um and i think those sorts of things of course can be very helpful for you know for some for some patients these are incredibly helpful in, in his case it made absolutely no difference and it just made him un unhappy not being able to have what he wanted to eat mm. uh and so i think that 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 one of the things that is very very difficult about living with serious illness is the, just the utter lack of agency um the the way in which you are so de kind of de-skilled 
in every single way. Um, and yeah, that was very hard. The, the theme of denial really came through very strongly in several parts of the book and including with the medics that you dealt with, um, apart from the very final doctor, you know, nobody would say this is very serious or do you know what this means um, or good luck with, you know, there are people saying, well, good luck and you'll find the best doctor and the best of the best and here's the most experienced medic to help with this. But nobody was mentioning, you know, have you put your affairs in order? Do you know what this means? How do you want to spend these months of your life? Um, would I be right in saying that, that that's what I picked up, that there was a collusion from the doctors as well um, in the denial of how serious his illness was? Well, I mean, I, again, this is something I suppose I've become very interested in kind of clinically, which is, is it collusion or is it that very often this is a sort of almost impossible thing for some doctors to say that doctors, generally speaking, don't get an enormous amount of of training on how it is that you break this kind of news. You think about, you know, being a psychotherapist, you know, one does this job after years and years and years of training and, and a lot of psychotherapy oneself and a lot of supervision. And, and, you know, even then it can sometimes be very hard to say things to people in the consulting room, even feeling that you, that you have a kind of sense of when it's right to bring up something difficult. And I, I sort of have, find myself thinking and indeed now sort of involved because of my book in discussions with this, you know, with us talking to a palliative care uh, specialist the other day about this, about how, how difficult it is for, for doctors to, you know, to break that piece of news to somebody, to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. And, and, you know, the kind of consequences of that, the difficulty of that for the doctor, they don't know the person sort of, for example, in the kind of way that if you work with a long time, therapeutically with somebody you get to know them you get a sense of what what might be sayable you have a sense of kind of how you might find words to say something that's very difficult that's important to kind of bring up somehow but with a with a physical illness like this there's nothing of that you know you've often not known the patient very well and then suddenly what you've got to give them this ton of news and so yes it's true that nobody did say that to that to, to us on the other hand again I come back to sort of you know, the sort of character uh, of Andrew, that he was somebody that very much liked to be in control of things and was, was um, you know, how he would have responded to being told um, that, that he was, you know, was about to die. I mean, if I'm not going to mince my words, you know, rather than ifs and possibilities and, you know, these sort of double negatives, I suppose, that are often kind of used. Uh, and actually, you describe that when a doctor finally did tell him that he was very ill. You describe Andrew walking Andrew angrily down the road and calling the doctor a, a four-lettered word that begins with C and ends with T <laughs> when, the no, when the news was broken to him that he was, he was very, very ill. Yeah, absolutely. He said yeah. he, yeah, he was furious. And, and in fact, actually, you know, I think, so I think it's, you know, I think it's a, I, I suppose what I think about all of this, Liz, and that's why I think this is so important, this podcast, and, and why um, I am so interested in, you know, the sort of discussion people like Catherine Mannix, who I know you uh, have, have had um, on your podcast, this kind of opening up of being able to talk about, um, talk about death in more 
in more open terms because you're absolutely right when you say that until something like this happens to you you do think that it will not happen to you yeah. and even you know as, as, a, as a therapist I was you know used to dealing with bereavement or impending bereavement people with serious illness I think that you know there is a very human reaction which is not to think that it is it is going to happen to your family and that, that the kind of possibility of finding ways of accepting even in this new amazing oncological landscape where you know I mean if you think about treatments for breast cancer now versus 20 years ago I mean it's sort of un unrecognizable how science is changing the way that all sorts of illnesses including cancer can be be treated there will still be people who are going to die of um, of a cancer that that can't be um, cured and that that is still something that you know, it's very, it is very, very hard, I think, to find the words to sort of accept that. Uh, it certainly was an archive. There's something you say at some stage, Juliet, in the book about, you know, because of Andrew's age, the, the shocking nature of his death, because, you know, when people are older and maybe have lived a good life, we somehow expect it. And there's maybe a, a different layer of trauma when they're young and literally in the fullness of their health, as, as Andrew appeared to be. And um, it, it made me think of somebody I'm supporting at the moment who is 84 and in total shock that his wife has died. You know, we, we assume that when we get to 80 or 90 that we're prepared, that, you know, the end is nigh and around the corner and not many people live beyond 100. But yet we can get to 80 and 90 and still be utterly shocked and traumatized when someone we love dies. Absolutely. But, yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's interesting the way that sort of as if old age, you know, means that it's it's um, somehow we're, we're kind of better prepared. Well, of course, some people are. Some people are better prepared. I mean, whatever one means by that. But I think especially so, you know, after a very, very long, intimate marriage, you know, if particularly if that is the principal person, it doesn't really matter, does it, what, what age someone is, that that, that that loss is just absolutely tremendous and very, very powerfully felt. And, um, and, and, and it has to be treated as that. And that, that, you know, as many people have said, that the kind of, you know, the pain is, is, is a direct proportion to the, the investment of love. And that if you have loved someone, in a very sort of unambivalent and kind of complete way. It is, of course, deeply, deeply painful. I mean, momentously, enormously painful when they die. And yes, if a marriage or a partnership has lasted decades, why would it not be just as, just as shocking and painful? Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Juliet, one thing that, that really moved me was listening to you talk about the nutritionists that came and looking through the cupboards and the fridge and your kitchen and get rid of this and, you know, take this and don't eat that and only eat this. Um, and I could just feel the desperation of, of you desperately wanting him to get better, wanting to find like whatever it takes 
I will do it. I will cook it. I will find it for him to beat this. Um, in hindsight now, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, nutrition can help some people. And in Andrew, that was not the case at all. No, and I, I suppose I, I wanted to write about that because I think that um, one of the things I often hear now when I work with, with people who have been bereaved is just this in, enormous sense of guilt, you know, of not having done the right thing, of, of, of not having, you know, listened to somebody when they complained about a pain which turned out to be something more sinister or, you know, when somebody said what they were feeling or even when people have been diagnosed, people feeling, um, you know, worn out by the kind of demands and being a bit short or, you know, not, I think guilt is just so powerful. And, um, and the sort of, as you say, desperation to do anything possible in the face of something, this, this in, you know, invisible horror that had suddenly kind of landed in Andrew, changed everything. Um, and yes, the, you know, you know, in my case, well, I thought, well, if I feed him the right food, well, maybe that will help. It's completely made no difference at all to him. Mm. But I suppose we, you know, we have to search for ways of finding some kind of agency. I mean, that's, that's also very human, isn't it? Yeah, trying to control anything you can control in the midst of a situation that's uncontrollable. I'm wondering as well about, you know, for ambiguity suits some people. I mean, some people just don't want to know and will say that I don't want to know what's going on. This is very much my choice. Um, it, it made me think of a guest I've had on the podcast, Sheila Boland, whose son got ill with a brain tumor, but unlike your friends, they were told very quickly he is not going to live and we can get, you know, maybe buy time with chemotherapy, you know, three to six months, but he will not survive this. And how her job was facing, you know, his dying and, and, and his remaining life and how do we live every day and make every day tremendous until he does die. And there's something about the lack of ambiguity that really helped her to turn towards her son's last weeks and months and his life and fully live those days and those hours in a way that left her with no regrets afterwards. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, with, a, a, with many cancer diagnoses, there, are so, there is so much ambiguity and so much unknown and so much confusion. Lots of people die of cancer. Lots of people live with cancer. And it's such a broad spectrum, you know, and we find ourselves thrown in. We're not sure what end of the spectrum we're on. Is it helpful to be given an idea of where we are? Or do you think that is just a process that people need to go through regardless of outcome? Well, I think, and this is almost kind of caveats everything when, whenever we all talk about grief, um, you know, those of us who are interested in kind of pursuing and enlarging the discussion and debate, which is, I think, we have to always, always acknowledge 
the idiosyncratic nature of it, that it is a very individual experience and that some people do not want to know. And, and that includes both the sufferer and the people around them that they, they prefer not to know. Does that enable some people to live with hope? Yes. Does that enable some people, you know, to live a better life? Yes. I, I think that, you know, my, my view now, which is obviously view now based on not only being a, a therapist that, that works with, with grief and with mourning and people who find themselves in the situation, but also now being someone that has actually had the experience myself, which maybe we can kind of come back to, because I think it's sort of distinct and interesting um, element of, of, of the whole discussion though, is that, you know, generally, being in denial is is does make things more difficult i think it does because i think it means that things can't have been said and it means as you said you know right at the beginning that sort of this is terribly painful but then there is a relief um and and that you know whatever it means and whether everything can be done in the time that remains or not that that things can be said and and things can be kind of sorted out and um and almost perhaps i mean i think one of the things that is you know is 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 very is very difficult and complicated in the aftermath is feeling you know if you feel that you haven't had time to say what needed to, to be said i mean i love Catherine mannix on this she's just isn't she so i think um uh, it's just i think it's just such sane advice about just you know telling people tell people how much you love them tell them tell them that don't stint on it and you know that was not that wasn't that was not fortunately our experience was not that we couldn't say that to each other um at all but i think um that where possible being given you know absolutely realistic um diagnoses uh which we certainly should have been i mean looking back and knowing now what i know um i think it would have made things i'm not saying it would have made things um much better but i think it would have i think it would have eased quite a lot of sort of what 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 then happened yeah so i think you know generally where possible where the lang where it's possible to to find a way of saying it there's a i suppose there's an idea in, in psychoanalysis that it is, it is possible to say almost anything if you can find the right words. And I really like that as a thought. Yeah. Something you have to really, really hunt for the right words, but it should be possible to say almost anything. You know, psychoanalysis, I think, is about sort of the pursuit of truth and, and living with a kind of truth. And so maybe that that's something to think about in this to find absolutely with 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 heavy doses of compassion yeah you know you know it's delivering the right words with compassion that's the difference isn't it um you know what you're saying there i would see it in my clinical practice over and over again and i think this is why people come for bereavement counseling where they mightn't have if things had been different if their loved ones had died differently and i hear over again i thought we had more time but nobody told me i didn't realize it was happening so soon before i knew it that was it 
um, it's like the, the denial is still so active, they haven't landed. And I think, you know, as caregivers, we can help people just to ground and land in the reality of their situation with honest, clear words. Um, but like you said, not everybody has that training and we have to be very comfortable with our own discomfort to be able to sit with somebody else's mm -hmm. and unfortunately we've still got a ways to go but it's an act of radical compassion to deliver bad news compassionately and timely rather than avoid it because we don't want to upset someone I, you know? I, well, I completely endorse that and I do think that you know as I was saying earlier despite this sort of radically improved oncological medical landscape that we live in where so many things are po you know it's, it's possible it's possible to fix isn't it so many things problems that happen with our bodies that there is also a kind of um there is a way in which goes back to what you were saying in the beginning we don't think this will happen to us and I think there's a bit in my book where I wrote about how you know I was in John Lewis looking for pants for my children or I'd be driving along to pick them up from school or I'd be you know going back to start work or I'd be washing my hair and, and I'd think it's not going to happen but it's not going to happen to us someone will tell us someone will tell us someone will tell us if he's going to die yeah and and you know I wrote a lot about how the thought became unthinkable uh, you know I almost couldn't have the thought until you know my unconscious really I think began to be unable to suppress that thought and my dreams became absolutely full of this kind of impending uh you know catastrophic explosion and i i wrote a bit about that and and dreams actually are you know so interesting in clinical work with bereaved people um you know how they change and how they develop and um and how you know sometimes when uh, you know, when the dead person kind of first comes back in a dream, how, how very painful it is because somebody will then wake up and, but how, you know, later on, even years later, sort of apparition of the dead person in a dream can be very upsetting, but also can feel like a bit of a gift. And, um, and I think maybe that's the difference that I write about when I try and talk about this difference between grief and mourning, which I think is also so interesting and, and important. Um, yeah, you, you refer to Freud a lot and his paper, Mourning and Melancholia, and how you, I think you were studying psychoanalysis at the time when Andrew died. And as part of your studies, you were attending your own regular psychoanalysis. And there you were two days after Andrew died lying on the couch, newly bereaved. Um, and then you also describe the early days of your grief, climbing into the wardrobe and closing the door to smell the shirts and closing the door so that the smell of him won't escape. Mm. And it's like the, the, the reality of your loss, it's so animalistic almost isn't it yeah I remember doing the same with my mother's nightdress the nightdress she died in I still have it you know in a box somewhere and it still smells of her um but how it's so these this is what I was referring to when we first started these things that we don't talk about we daren't let anyone know and then yet you lying there on the analytical couch 
uh, and, and so far maybe from what you needed, you know, I'm imagining that one brave soul who would climb into the wardrobe with you and hold you as you sit there with Andrew's shirts. I mean, I, you know, I obviously had to think very hard about all sorts of many, many things when I wrote this book. And one of which was, you know, what, what I was prepared to disclose about myself because I'm obviously a psychotherapist and generally we don't want to disclose much about ourselves for our patients' benefits because the work is about them and our, 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 you know, our minds coming together as an analytic couple, a therapeutic couple or pair, not clouding you know, the patient's experience, as it were, with my stuff. And, but I, you know, I so obviously thought very hard when I, was, when I was writing about that, but I also felt very strongly that when I did disclose that experience, to a few kind of trusted people how, who had been bereaved themselves, how, how absolutely normal they thought it was. And, you know, like your mum's nightdress, um, you know, I can think of the, the two people I told and they just said, well, of course, of course. And I, and I said, but, you know, I, I sort of felt I was going mad. And they, they said, well, you know, you weren't going mad. You were doing kind of what you needed to do and of course the, that comforting soul should have been there in the wardrobe with me well the only person that I wanted was Andrew and I think that's you know another aspect that is so difficult about how you know how do you comfort somebody because for a long time the thing is that somebody doesn't really want that you know the, the only comfort they want is from the person that has gone and you know, anything else feels like a kind of substitution. And so I think these ways of sort of hanging on to these rather mundane objects are, are they are our, they are our sort of reality testing attempts to kind of see if we can, you know, if we can in some way get the person back. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating. You know, I, I could really identify or really imagine you there in the wardrobe and trying to consume the smell of him and, I remember someone telling me once that they were doing something with their loved one's ashes and some of them fell on their hand and, you know, they kind of looked around and when no one was looking, they started licking the ashes. And it's this desire to almost consume or merge with or to have back our loved one because the loss of them is so great. We're, 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 we're just trying to get something of them back inside us, that sense of them. Um, and, and this is something that hasn't been written about a lot or spoken about a lot. You know, the, the yearning to inhale them almost. Um, what do you well, think of that, Julia? Well, really interesting. And I think, um, you know, I think one of the things um, that, um, that I absolutely, I wrote about it, and I, you know, I felt it, but it's a theory. I mean, it's just a piece of theoretical thinking well before, as it were, I experienced it. But the sort of the comparisons really between birth and death, um, you know, not, not just the sort of the, you know, I talked a bit about the death instinct and I talked about, you know, my own experiences of, of, of giving birth. But I also think that there's something about death, which is it does kind of take us back to, our most primitive, primitive needs. This idea of, um, you know, the person that you are most attached to in, in adulthood, your partner, the person that one is most attached to as a baby, whoever the caregiver is, you know, that adult, mother, father, caregiver. 
suddenly gone. And I think it shakes all of one's assumptions, you know, all of one's, um, if we think a bit about attachment theory, for example, yeah. the ways in which, you know, uh, we, we, we learn to trust, don't we, that, the, that you know, mum is going to come and, and look after us if, if, if we cry out for her. And I think in the same way in adult life, there is something of that. We trust that the person that we, we fall in love with, if we're lucky enough to fall in love, that person will be there, you know, and they will, they will be there to look after us, to shield us. And then, of course, with their death, not only is there, the, you know, is the dreadful absence, but there's also the fact that they're gone and they've abandoned you. And, um, and this is, I think it does often provoke very, very sort of primitive you know, mad reactions to it, like getting into the description I, you know, described as sort of desperately wanting his shirts in some way, believing that the shirts were connecting me with him. And, but I, you know, there are many examples, poignant examples of this that I'm sure you hear and, and I hear. Absolutely. People wanting to dig up their loved one's remains weeks after they've died or, um, and these are things they feel that they can't say to people. And they say, I feel like I'm going mad. Or has anyone ever told you that before? Is this normal? It's like, it's so shocking. Even my beautiful 84-year-old person that I'm, you know, supporting at the moment, after so many losses through his life, it's still so shocking when it lands on your door. And as I said to him, you've dodged bullets <laughs> to get to 84 without having experienced a significant loss. Um, but the impact for him now is, is utterly tremendous. Some of us get used to loss, I guess, throughout our lives. If we, you know, lose a friend or, you know, we, we, we come to know it a little bit. But I think that one no matter what age you are, that one first massive loss yeah. is tremendous. It's like a, a nuclear explosion going off in your life and nothing is untouched by it. Your friendships, your body, your home, your thoughts, your dreams, your finances, your emotions, every single part of your life, every cell in your body is irreversibly changed forever after that one big loss, that first big loss. Right, that's absolutely right. You're changed forever. I agree. Mm. And I, you know, I think that, um, that there is a sort of, you know, whilst I, I'm obviously, you know, very interested in, in, in how it is that we begin to think more and more about grief and about about the impact of it on a on a person's life perhaps especially when it is a kind of shocking or, or an unexpected one but i'm also kind of wary of um sort of models or theories where one can see you know where one talks about silver linings or resilience or you know there being in some way kind of um good things that will come out of it because you know my belief and it's fairly blunt probably is that that that, it, that is not the case i do not detect any silver linings in my experience i i would much 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 rather this not this had not happened in every single possible way however it's reality and you know and and when someone has died that is the reality and it needs to be i think gradually gradually uh, you know, learnt to live with um, and kind of accommodated in the mind and, um, 
you know accepted as 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 it were that 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 is you know that that life uh is irrevocably is irrevocably changed by it um but i you know but i i am you know i'm i'm kind of conscious of 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 um as the debate uh, as the conversation you know for all the good reasons we're talking about gets bigger that we don't lose sight of the fact that as it is for your 84 year old uh client that that it is it is appalling it is um you know when death comes along unexpectedly uh it, it feels like falling into the most appalling kind of abyss it, it's it, you know my experience was that it was sort of it was horrifying and that very very little I've, i i found you know very little kind of changed that for quite a long time um and you know I, I couldn't really take any consolation because i'm not sure that there's that much that can be offered to begin with um because the person is you know we're 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 we're, we're determined and we're resistant aren't we and what we want is the thing that we've lost we don't want a substitute or a kind of another offering or you know some way in which we kind of um, have to have a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of a poor second of them. And so I, I suppose that's, that's one thing that I'm quite interested in. And I think, you know, I think Freud was, you know, later on, he, 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 he kind of went back thinking a bit about that paper that he wrote in 1915. And he, he sort of said, actually, maybe I was a bit economical then with the truth. And maybe, you know, he, he at that point thought that somehow you got over the lost loved person by kind of falling in love with someone else and later on when he'd suffered you know more losses himself he'd by then lost his daughter yes exactly and he says actually you know i think that it doesn't you know it doesn't really diminish i don't i don't i don't think you do ever get over the loss and i think that's also important to keep keep, keep in mind alongside um you know alongside obviously what one wants when somebody has died which is you want the person that is suffering to feel to feel better, but it's it's not always possible. Yeah, and I, I think it's how some people make meaning and make sense of, you know, this this notion of post traumatic growth, or, you know, I'm so sad that he died. However, look at all the brilliant things we've done with this foundation that we set up in his memory, and it was all for a reason. And, you know, if that person chooses that as their meaning making. However, it's not for everybody. Um, and, and what's so important is every individual needs to find their own meaning from their loss. Um, and for some, they'll turn to religion. And, you know, research shows that if you have a religious faith, you're, you're going to do much better out of bereavement because you have meaning immediately. Well, you've somewhere to put them, somewhere to locate your deceased loved ones and that belief that you will see them again. Um, for others, like I said, it's setting up a foundation in their honor and feeling like some goodness has come from the laws. And for others, it's just pure shite and that's it. <laughs> and uh, they're all equally valid. Um, but I so agree with you, uh, this spiritual bypassing or everything is love and light or, you know, this denial of the grief um, is so damaging. Mm. Um, yeah, there's been a, a couple of books recently, isn't it? This notion of resilience and bouncing back. But I think to avoid grief is to avoid something very important as a human being that we must experience, you know. Um, 
and and grief is different to Andrew dying. You know, Andrew dying is dreadful. Your grief experience, all of it may not always be dreadful. There might be good things that come from the experience of grief, but it's not to confuse that with the devastating fact that Andrew died too young. Absolutely. They're different, you know. I absolutely, I think that that's put very, very well. And I think, you know, I mean, we've already said this, but that everybody does it differently. It's, it's strange for such a universal experience how how different how different it is. But I I think that, and you're absolutely right that that for some people the possibility you know of of, of a foundation or whatever it is something you know much 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 tinier like a um, I don't know planting a planting a, a tree or something that's very good if it makes someone feel better. But I, but I, you know, myself, I am, I'm sort of wary of suggestions that, that um, kind of, that, that things can be kind of substituted in some way to, to, to kind of avert how absolutely awful it is. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I suppose, you know, as a therapist sitting with people for a very long time, and listening, you know, for for years sometimes to their misery about the person that they wanted no longer being alive. And I think that, you know, for me to say sometimes anything would be the wrong thing. Certainly for me to kind of comment on their strength or comment on him or her still being with you when then, you know, when in, 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 in you know in physical bodily terms they are they are clearly not would would be the wrong thing and one has to tread very 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 gently and very very carefully and um never to make assumptions about how anyone is is feeling even you know three months three years 30 years after the event because it it is it is such a kind of it's such a well in many ways it's such a kind of isolating lonely journey that must be made alone you know even if even if you're offered lots and lots of help you know it's it's really not always possible for someone to to take it and um and so i think you know we have to be kind of wary about sort of rushing in to to help people where where sometimes just sort of waking up getting up if not even that is is becomes impossible for a, for a while at least which i suppose is where you know as we were talking about earlier the kind of ordinary routines of life the school run a job you know the shopping mm. are kind of useful because you do have to kind of get up and get on and that's what the vast majority of people you know have to do isn't it what surprised you most about your grief juliet i think the overwhelming this overwhelming sense of the the dematerialization of a body you know that 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 here was someone who'd been so sentient so <clears throat> alive so um so present so big so physically psychologically you know there suddenly was gone and um I don't think anything could have prepared me for that. And I, and I think that's exactly the same for a lot. You just, the dematerialization, you know, suddenly someone is gone and, and they are gone because, that, you know, um, you have the evidence of that. 
um, and that um, uh, just a sense of of just you know utter um, incomprehension actually. Uh, I think that really surprised me. I think I thought as a clinician I'd be better prepared. I thought because I'd known he'd had a serious cancer, I was you know I was sort of pre well prepared, and I don't think I was. And I, you know, now I'm not surprised by that. Um, and I don't think that's got anything to do with anything other than really that grief is, it is an enormous, enormous uh, uh, sort of emotion. I, I struggle even to find words for it. You know, I tried in my book to describe it with, but, but I think it's a very difficult thing to describe. And I think that's partly to do with this lack of agency, you know, that often in therapy, one's working with people where a relationship is broken of some kind. They, they, you know, it's not about, it's not about fault. It's often about responsibility and it's often about what was their part in it, you know, and with, and with death with a serious illness, when it comes along, you know, you, you, you played no, no part in it. You're sort of a bystander and yet you're absolutely affected by it. And I think that's very difficult. So it probably goes back to our conversation about the way in which we try to do things to in some way kind of gain some kind of control. Um, so in that respect, it's quite like depression, you know, where people often feel they've just got no agency or control, this thing yeah. descends. And again, in Mourning and Melancholia, that's what Freud is drawing attention to, these parallels between depression and grief. They have a similarity, the, the kind of, the most profound of which perhaps is a sense of hopelessness. Yeah. Um, and with depression, like you say in the book, we often don't know why we're low. But with grief, there's a very specific, clear reason yeah. for our low mood. Yeah. 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 But Juliet, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And listeners, I really, really recommend this book, The State of Disbelief. We'll put a link to where you can buy it in the podcast description. Um, just... The way, just the way you write, it's beautiful. The way you describe every aspect of the journey through Andrew's illness, it's so human and it's so thoughtful and it's such a gift that you're giving people who may be facing into something similar um, to give them this insight into your process. Um, and I hope that it will help people. I've no doubt that it will, Juliet. Oh, well, Liz, thank you. Um, very kind words. Thank you so much. And thank you for this, you know, for this wonderful uh, podcast, which I, I, I know helps a lot of people. And you're very sort of lovely and sensitive interviewing. So thank you very much. Ah, for thanks, Juliet. Thank you. We'll talk again. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again, please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. The spray hung like jewels in her hand. Need the rock, the rock of that desolate land.
And it's 